about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Rick Wallace, and he'll be answering your questions on fly fishing the island of Hokkaido. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Rick a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form on the right-hand column of our website to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will begin. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. Uh, you can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using for your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you shared our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. The, there's a few links right there on our homepage of our website. You can click on those and, and share the knowledge. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Rick Wallace about fly fishing the island of Hokkaido. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Kuntui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Rick, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving uh, away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Rick's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Uh, I've got a list of uh, books from Stackpole here that I can give away, and um, you'll get to pick if you win from that list of books. Now, here's how you win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. Uh, the question could be one or two parts. Um, the question will be about something that Rick and I talk about tonight on the show. So go ahead and submit your answer when we pose the question, along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. It's the same box you can ask questions in during the show. And uh, the first person that gets it right uh, wins the book. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and maybe you'll win, win that Stackpole book. If you'd like to learn more about Stackpole books, go up to stackpolebooks.com. Uh, they're a great publisher. They've published uh, literally hundreds of books on fly fishing, so uh, check them out. Um, OK, tonight. Our guest is Rick Wallace. 
Rick is a well-traveled Australian fly fisher who has been fishing since he was a child and has fly fished throughout the world, including New Zealand, Patagonia, Tasmania, and Japan. He is passionate about sight fishing for trout and other species. He's worked as a journalist for 20 years, and his writing has been published in leading fly magazine, Fly Life. He grew up in the alpine regions of Australia's southernmost mainland state, Victoria, and currently lives in the state capital, Melbourne. Rick spent four years living in Japan from 2010 to 2014 as a foreign correspondent for the Australian newspaper and fished extensively in Japan's most remote region, Hokkaido, known for its time in trout, char, and salmon fishing. While in Japan, he participated in the filming of the fly fishing movie Predator with his friend and fly fishing filmmaker, Nick Regant, <laughs> you have to correct me, it admitted in a segment focused on trying to catch a timing over the magical one meter mark, which is about 40 inches. Rick is also founder and editor of fishing information website called Tackle Village. Rick, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Hi, Roger. It's great to have the opportunity to have a chat with you. Well, good, good. Uh, would you mind uh, repronouncing Nick's last name since I uh, destroyed it? <laughs> yeah, Raygart. It's uh, Nick's of Australian originally but lives in New Zealand but is of Danish heritage. Um, so I think it's Raygart. I always have trouble spelling Raygart. it too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, good, good. Well, we're glad we cleared that up. <laughs> um, so we are, and Rick is in Australia right now and connecting to us. It's about 12 noon over there. So um, Correct. Uh, glad we could make this happen. And, uh, you know, the marvels of technology now, even for the, even for the little guy like me, uh, is are pretty amazing. So, um uh, so we're all good to go here. So lots of questions, uh, Rick. Uh, let's um, let's dive in here. Let's talk about uh, you know, give us a little geography lesson because we Japan's made up of uh, many different islands, right? And uh, tell us tell us about Hokkaido. Yeah, you're you're right, Roger. Japan's believe it or not is a archipelago of five thousand islands. Um, most of them very small, but there's four main islands and. Um, you, um, the main one that people most people know is Honshu, where the capital Tokyo is, is located. But then to the north of that, um, we have Hokkaido, which is a large, more sparsely populated island. It's kind of, just trying to think of the right way to describe it. We, we talked a little bit about it sort of being like a bit of a frontier um, for Japan, almost like Alaska in, in that sense, in that its sort of latitude is starting to get up quite high. It's quite cold in winter and it's very wild. Um, so whilst there is fly fishing in other parts of Japan, on the other island, I did most of the fly fishing uh, I did over there on, on the island of Hokkaido, which is sort of home to about 5 million people, which in Japanese terms, and, and it's a relatively big area, is quite sort of sparsely populated. So that sort of tends to lend itself to, to better fishing and more wild sort of places, the kind of places I really love to fish. Did you find uh, fly fishing popular in Japan in general? I wouldn't say popular, Roger. It's um, I think Japanese fly fishing is a few in number, but those that you do have are extremely dedicated. The Japanese sort of personality, I'm generalizing here, but it's, I think it's true, is um, it lends itself to sort of often becoming obsessed 
obsessed about a particular sort of niche pursuit and you might have people that for, for them that might be trains or it might be cooking or whatever and whatever they'll pursue they'll pursue with extraordinary dedication and and you know often to the exclusion of anything else and that's what I sort of found in the Japanese fly fishing cultures you'd have a you have a bunch of people who are very welcoming and very, very knowledgeable and they'd fish as much as they could and they'd fish very, very well. You'd see that sort of flow over into their fly tying and, you know, the extent to which these guys get, mostly guys, some women, get into um, fly fishing and fly tying is truly extraordinary. Yeah, um, there is, uh, of course, so much art in Japan that I've been aware of and I came into that, came upon that intensity that you're talking about when uh, I was growing bonsai trees for a while, and just the care and meticulous approach that the Japanese had for raising those trees was just incredible. So I can imagine that how it's also applied to fly fishing for sure. Um, well, mm -hmm. now you were there working as a correspondent, and how did you find out that you were a fly fisher, right, before your assignment? Yeah, there, yeah. Take it. And, uh, I was. Yeah, how did you uh, find out about the the fishing in Hokkaido? I was just really lucky. Um, when I, I was posted there in 2010, and uh, one of the first people I met was a trade commissioner uh, for one of the Australian states in, in Tokyo, and um, I met him in a sort of professional context. But um, sort of became apparent in that first meeting that he was uh, he'd spent a lot of time in Australia, a Japanese national, but spent a lot of time in Australia, and um, we got talking about fly fishing immediately, and um, I sort of. I'd packed my um, fly fishing gear when I'd moved there, but I sort of, you know, didn't really envisage using it, to be honest. But he told me that, um, started telling me these stories about Hokkaido and chasing these sort of trout that can grow to a metre or more and big rainbow trout. And, yeah, so that's how I found out about it. Uh, it. It wasn't something I was sort of particularly aware of. It's sort of a bit of a, a secret in the angling community, in, in a sense. Um, there's not a lot of literature on... Uh, Japanese fly fishing that's in English, so I think there's a, sort of that sort of cultural barrier that means it's sort of it's quite undiscovered mm -hmm. until now. Right now, um, and so just the lure of large fish in Japan uh, intrigued you enough to to make a trip up there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, he he said um, as soon as he said, "Oh, we can fish for this uh, this timon," and and I'd known about timon from watching videos in Mongolia. I've never had the pleasure to fish over there, but um, I knew about the fish from the uh, river fishing in Mongolia, and, and he said, I time, and and, um, and so we got talking about it, and he said, yeah, it's a sea-run version of the same fish, um, and you can go up and catch it, and uh, takes flies very readily. It's a great place to go fishing, and, and as a bonus, you've got all this fishing for char and rainbow trout as well. So I think trying to think yeah before in 2010 i would have done my first trip up there in 2010 and probably went back up there i don't know maybe six or seven times over the time that i was there fishing for a week or so every time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah now how would one get to hokkaido obviously from anywhere in the world you're going to fly into what tokyo or something first to get there yeah there'll be some places where you have a sapporo is the state capital of um of Hokkaido, uh, there's some areas where you have a direct flight um, to Sapporo. This is an area where a lot of people go skiing in the winter, so there's mm -hmm. quite a relatively well-established tourist infrastructure. So um, if not, you can um, fly to Tokyo and then get an internal domestic flight to 
up to Hokkaido. Or I think they've now connected the bullet train, the Shinkansen, all the way through to um, Hokkaido. It goes under the sea and then um, pops back up in, in Hokkaido. That wasn't a feature when I was there. There was another train, a slower train. But, um, but yeah, I think now they've got the bullet train that runs all the way to Sapporo, which is a great way to hmm. um, get up there as well. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Uh, and there's um, obviously with Sapporo, that sounds like a kind of a tourist winter resort kind of place as well, so there must be plenty of places to stay on the island? Yeah, there is. There's lots of hotels. Um, you know, Japan, um, their hotel industry was sort of built uh, when their population was a little larger than, than it is now, so yeah, there's no shortage of places to stay uh, up there. We just usually stay in a lodge or a hotel. It's quite affordable and always really good accommodation and very good food, always excellent food. As I think you'd probably remember, Roger, I think when we were talking, you'd spent a little bit of time in Japan yourself. I'm sure the food would have stuck out to you as being particularly delicious. I, I prob- Well, I love Japanese food, but when I was there at three years old, I was probably get, getting uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah, okay. did, oh, you missed out. I didn't learn about the Japanese cuisine so much <laughs> later in life. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I was there when I, I think it was two or three years old, and and um, I don't really remember anything. I wish I did, but wish I was older when ah, I went okay. there. But that's luck of the draw. You luck can always go back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, when you say you stayed in lodges or hotels, are there are these dedicated to, to fly fishing, or are these just general hotels and lodges? Just, uh, usually just general hotels. Um, yeah. for um, you know, people who are sort of riding a motorbike around the island or just visiting as a family or whatever. Yeah, yeah. they're always good hotels, good accommodation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, when you go to Alaska, you go to Alaska Fishing Lodge or to Chile to a you know, ah, fishing yeah. lodge. I was thinking, wondering if they had a similar, if it was that far developed there, but that doesn't sound like I it. Think- yeah, if there is, there's only like one or two, and it wouldn't be of the scale. I think that you know you might have in Alaska, as you say, or Patagonia, or other places like that, New Zealand, even. Yeah, no, it's pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a niche pursuit, I have to say. There's a lot more lure fishermen, and foreign anglers are a minority. So it's sort of you don't have that really, really well established system of lodges. Where would be, uh, would you stay in Sapporo or, or where would you stay on the island to get, uh, you know, have the best access to fishing? It very much depends what you're chasing. Um, so for, for if you're chasing the Taiman, um, that's up on the, in the north of the island. Um, if you think of Hokkaido, it's just sort of shaped like a star um, with, a, you know, say four points. So, so up north is where the Taiman are. And then you come down to sort of central and eastern Hokkaido and, and that's where you're getting more of the salmon, the Pacific salmon that they get. And into central Hokkaido, you're more, that's more where your, your rainbow trout and your white-spotted char and that sort of thing is. And then sort of further south towards, back towards the capital, Sapporo. Again, you've got rainbow trout, but you've also got those small iwana and yamame, which are just um, landlocked versions of salmon and a, and a char species that, are very popular. They only grow very small. This is like the kind of creek fishing that they have in Japan, which I admittedly haven't done a lot of, but um, it's very popular there for to sort of take a walk up into the mountains with a two-weight rod and, and fish these tiny streams for these beautiful, beautiful, wonderfully coloured um, two species, um, Iwana and uh, Yamame. So um, yeah. where you go, 
is sort of driven by what you're chasing. And I think, you know, the best way to do Japan, the Hokkaido really is probably with a guide. I, whilst I didn't go with a guide, or I did go with a guide, but more of a kind of um, with a group of friends and the guide was one of the friends. And you can find English-speaking guides and they, they'll connect you with the right accommodation and sort of tell you where you where you should stay and where you should go and help you plan an, an itinerary. It's um, I think you get a lot more out of it that way. It's, there's not a huge amount of English spoken there. And the fishing is absolutely superb, but the logistics um, sort of lend itself to being better served through probably hiring a guide. Sure, sure. Yeah, I expect so. Now, I just popped it up on Google to see the map and so forth, and they had some pictures of it's pretty large mountains there. Uh, so the topography is, is mountainous, it seems, at least in some parts, right? Yeah, yeah, almost all of Japan's pretty mountainous, and um, there's some terrific skiing up there. These mountains aren't super high. I don't know if they'd be, you know, 5,000 feet or ballpark, but because it's so far north, it gets quite quite good snow, very famous for its skiing, and, and yeah, there is most of it is forested and mountain mountainous, which sort of lends itself to good fishing. Yeah, yeah, five thousand feet. That's just foothills around here. I'm I'm sitting at <laughs> eighty eight hundred right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So guides are, are available there. Uh, English speaking, that's mm-hmm. great. Uh, mm-hmm. Rex um, in evidently uh, splits his time in Chile in the U.S. He wrote in and asked, uh, "What is the situation with public access to rivers and lakes in Hokkaido and in Japan as a whole?" Yeah, it's um, access is is pretty free. There are some fisheries where you'll have to pay a um, uh, like a daily fee or kind of to be able to fish a permit. Rather, there's no license required for freshwater fishing or for sea fishing for that matter. But um, on some waters, particularly popular ones, you'll have to pay a, a daily fee. I think that's more a feature of um, Honshu, to be honest, where there's much bigger population. I don't, I can't remember ever having to pay a fee up in Hokkaido. No, I don't think we did. And access, mm, okay. um, yeah, look, access points are at, uh, you're mostly fishing uh, what we call crown land, I suppose, in Australia, but public land. So you're not having to sort of cross property. You can, we'd mostly access from bridges and walk up or walk down and the access is fine. There's no one going to sort of come screaming out of the house and tell you off or anything like that. Probably the main hazard up there is the brown bears that they have, um, similar to your grizzly bears. That's probably the main hazard that we have to sort of be conscious of when we're fishing in Hokkaido. Yeah, yeah. That's always kind of interesting, I found. You know, I was last year fishing up in Yellowstone National Park, and uh, and it was highly recommended. We have bear spray with us up there, too. But, you know, you get so involved in fishing <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you, you got to stop yourself and look around or have somebody else looking around for you because uh, the animals can kind of just wander close. We were having kind of uh, close calls with uh, with buffalo, you know, bison. Oh, right. Um, okay. They just start grazing towards you, and all of a sudden, you know, they get closer and closer. So, yeah. Always, and they can be quite hostile, can they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends. It's like any mm. other large animal. You get in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they don't like it. So, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's that's interesting. Uh, I have this question. Let's see here. Um, the 
question is, uh, what is the most important preparation someone should undertake to ready themselves to fish in these waters effectively? Anything out of the ordinary or any, any gear think, you might bring that you wouldn't normally bring? Yeah, this might be a good um, good sort of prompt to run over some of the gear. I don't think there's anything that I'd say that you you absolutely have to practice. Um, a few things to note, you'll sometimes be fishing in quite heavy wind as you're up there in this sort of you know, relatively northerly latitude and um, sort of wild place where the wind can sometimes be strong, not, not like Patagonia or anything like that. But the other one I'd say is if you're fishing for the rainbow trout, the streams are quite wooded and enclosed, so that's sort of you're fishing with a five weight and you're trying relatively congested areas, so you're not, not doing a long cast. So for that, it'd just be like casting off your other shoulder or um, roll cast, bow and arrow cast even, like just all those skills that you've, you've developed fishing in heavily wooded sort of streams. In terms of gear, I think, um, well, the gear I fished with is, I fished with a five weight for all the rainbow trout and char. I think you need, you could, the streams lend themselves to probably a smaller rod, even a three, two or a three, but you won't stop the, the rainbows that you're fishing for are very powerful and are very strong and you, you probably won't stop them on that gear. So I think a five would be the ideal outfit for that. And for the, the time and the bigger fish, which is sort of getting up ideally to a metre, you really want, if you're fishing single hand, you really want an eight weight, uh, I think. And um, double hand, which you can fish with as well, you're wanting to have a sort of eight, eight through to ten weight. Um, mostly fishing with a floating line. And um, yeah, those two outfits would probably be perfect. And um, if you're going up into the hills chasing the Iwana and your mame, you'll only need a two-weight or whatever sort of small stream outfit that you, you want to use. And again, the floating line is, is probably the way to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Well, we'll dig into that a little bit more deeply here when we talk about each of the species here. But uh, time to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about the island and so forth, and then start talking about timing. So hang with us, and we'll be right back. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams, and just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongos, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, it's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Rick Wallace about fly fishing the island of Hokkaido. If you would like to ask Rick a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, now you did talk about, um, well, what we didn't talk about is best time of year to fish up there. And uh, since it's something like Alaska, I'm imagining that it's um, not a long season up there. 
Yeah, that's that's 100% right, Roger. It's, you're looking at probably uh, May uh, through to October, November is is the window, um, and the sort of peak window. You're more probably looking at June, July, August for the char and uh, trout and thyme, and, uh, and then the salmon sort of running through from the end of summer uh, into autumn. Those are the best times for sure. Otherwise, it's, the island's under ice for. <laughs> Um, the, basically, yeah. the time outside of that period. Yeah, that sounds exactly like Alaska. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't really look on the globe to see if the latitude's about the same, but uh, sounds sounds pretty similar. Um, mm. uh, and um, the species you've mentioned: um, taimen, rainbow trout, salmon, char. Uh, we did have another question about barbell fishing. Uh, do you know of any of that there? I don't, to be honest, Roger, no. Um, it's not a species I've, I've encountered fishing outside of Japan and, and certainly not within Japan as um, either. I had, a, when you sent the questions through, I had a bit of a look um, to see if I could find any reference to it on the internet. But no, unfortunately, I didn't um, find any okay. info. Yeah. Okay. And um, uh, Bob Nunn wrote in and said, asked, uh, you know, are there... Is there any mention uh, of the mentioned salmonoids that we just talked about? Are any native to yeah. the island? Yeah, yeah, they are. So um, the taimen is is native to to the island. The other, the Pacific salmon species, are naturally occurring, and the most prolific, I suppose, is the pink salmon and the chum. The amemas or the white spotted char, that's native only to Japan. That's quite a a good game fish to to pursue. I think those are the main ones. Then you've got the sort of the Iwana and the Yamame also uh, being native as well. The introduced fish you're looking at are the, the brown trout, the rainbow trout. Um, I think there's brook trout in some places. Yeah, those are the, would be the main introduced species. Are they reproducing in the wild now, or do they do a stocking program or any kind of the rainbow? I don't or think browns? they do. Yeah. No, I don't think they're self-sustaining now. Uh, brown is trout are quite uncommon, to be honest, but the rainbows are, yeah, very much self-sustaining now. Okay, okay. Well, let's talk about uh, taimen, first of all. Mm. And, um, of course, we all look at those pictures from uh, Mongolia and <laughs> wonder <laughs> and wish. Um, and I guess you, you were, as you said earlier, you were a little bit surprised when you first heard about them there too, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I had no idea whatsoever that they, they existed in Japan. And um, yep. the difference in Japan being that it's an anadromous um, time and predominantly, so it runs out to the sea and feeds in the sea and then up the rivers as well. And they're coming back to spawn? Uh, they spawning, yeah, the right up in there. Uh, look, both. Um, you'll have some that are almost permanently river resident. Um, you'll have some that are in the estuary, like the lower section of the river, and go out the river mouth and come back in. And I think you'll even have some. There's a place, a, a lake in Japan, where they also fish for them. I, I never fished them, for them in the lake, but um, I've looked at it on Google Maps, and I don't think it's <laughs> connected to the um, ocean at all. So you've got a population that exists in a, in a sort of large lake without actually going back out to the sea. But... Um, you know, as a rule, they're anadromous fish, um, but they will do their spawning in the headwaters of um, the river or lake system in winter. So they'll head up there in the in the winter. 
Okay, okay. And how do they compare to to the timing of let's say Mongolia and so forth? Did you do they look very similar? Are there differences in in how they look or their size and so forth? Yeah, there's a few differences there. Um, color for the first um, point is is different. They're more of a silvery silvery color, and they've, they've also got a very beautiful fish. They've got a um, especially when they get larger, they've got a pink sort of hue to them. Not quite as defined as a rainbow trout, but this. By the same token, it's sort of a beautiful pink colour through through their flanks. I think they're probably they're, they're not as large, a huge time, and I think we can talk about this later on. But I was trying to get a one in the film. We were trying to get a one one meter, and I've got to stop talking meters. So forty inches, I think. For, let's call it forty inches or forty five. So that was the the mark for um, trying to get. I was trying to be the first non-Japanese to catch one of that size, and um, the largest you'd hear of being caught in modern times would be a, uh, a metre 30 or sort of trending up towards beyond 50 inches. In Mongolia, they're, they're obviously bigger than that. They're the same predatory sort of behaviour you'll see. They're very aggressive fish. They'll take bait flies. You'll see them. They are sort of actively hunt bait fish in the shallows or in stretches of the river. So they're a really good fish to target with fly for that reason because they're aggressive feeder, um, very beautiful fish obviously, good sport fish and just uh, fun to catch. Incredible fish really. Have I got you Roger? Hello? Uh, might have muted out there, sorry. <laughs> Still here. Sorry, all good. Um, yeah. Yeah, carry on, carry on Rick, uh, <laughs> without me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I've never had to tell any of my guests that, like, okay, if I go away, just finish the show off. <laughs> so, but no, I'm here. I was coughing and forgot to unmute myself. Um, no worries. No so problem. when you say they were ambush uh, or predatory, are they ambush type or are they running down these bait fish? Um, you know, I think of, like, pike as a, a weight and ambush, you know, by structure, mm. where I see, a, you know, a, a barracuda would – cruise around looking for lunch, you know. Yeah, probably more tending towards the, the Barracuda mode. Um, the area where we where I fished mainly for them and where, where we sort of did the filming for the Predator was, is a river very close to the sea, so it's a tidal stretch of the river. And what they do in there is they cruise the channel sort of, it's not, not very deep, but they cruise the channel maybe a metre or two off the, maybe two, three metres, feet again, sorry, um, 10 feet off the off the bank and the bait fish sort of tend to hug the bank and what the timon does is once he spies the bait fish, he'll peel up onto into the shallows and herd the fish on almost onto the bank and then pick off the bait fish, then peel back out into the, the deeper stretch of the river and they'll sort of repeat that repeat that behaviour. Um, you'll see so much so that you, and they, they pick their spots for this, so so much so that you see the birds will will sit in a particular spot because they know that the timon will herd the bait fish in up onto the bank. The bait fish will flop out onto the bank to try and get away from the timon and the bird sits there and just gobbles up the ones that get on and wind up on the bank. So not a not a great environment to be a bait fish but it sort of helps the fishermen because you can see exactly where their ambush points are and then and then target those areas that you're trying to catch them. Yeah, yeah. Probably some something to do with the, the structure there in the first place or the, the shape of the banks and so forth, where they can push them into a confined area or something, I would imagine. Um, yes, yeah. They're doing it again bait. and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
so is that where most of the fishing for them is done, is, is an area like what you just described? Yeah, I think so. That, this system is probably the, the most popular place to fish for them, and there's, there's a few rivers that are similar in that area. And this is right on the sort of northern tip of Hokkaido, so as you're getting up towards, as you go further north, there's a big island called Sakhalin Island, which is, belongs to Russia, and then you go further north to there and you're into Siberia, so it's right up in the, the most remote reaches of Hokkaido, and, and you'll go there, and um, that's, that's the best spot if you want to make sure that you, you can get onto a few fish because it's very visual too. You can sort of walk the banks and you'll see them swirling and sometimes you'll even see the fish themselves as they swim along, which just sort of helps you target them successfully. I see a city or town up there called Wakanai. Or... Yeah, that's it. That's where you're flying to or, yeah. So the river we fish is uh, called the Sarafutsu River system and it's... Um, it's about an hour's drive um, south from Wakanai. On the west? Right up in the... Yeah. I'm just looking at my own map. Yeah, just so if you can see the tip, Wakanai is to the east of Wakanai, so Wakanai is sort of on that northerly tip, and then you, dr yeah. you drive east towards the Pacific, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, along that shoreline that looks like a road going following the shoreline there, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah um, and you said earlier uh, eight weight. Um, I thought I read in the article, too, that you, you guys were uh, fishing with some sinking tips or something as well, not yeah. always floating. Is that true? Yeah, sometimes fishing uh, sinking tips. There's probably three main ways to target them. So you, I fish with a friend. Chiba, who's a really good caster, he likes, uh, he's a tournament caster, he, he loves double-handed and, and loves blasting fly, you know, um, many, many feet over a river and stripping it back or swinging flies. Me, I'm more kind of a sight fishing person, so when we, when we went up there, he would, um, for the movie Predator we were filming, he would get out there and um, he'd put on a surface fly like a gurgler and he'd like cast it right across the entire river and then strip that gurgler back and these fish will take that on the surface so that's sort of method one or you can do the same approach with a, a sinking line or and and strip a streamer and strip that back through the sections of the river more like what you do for salmon or steelhead in your part of the world and then you'd have the other technique which we used was which i preferred was to just target these ambush points and just wait till they come in and then just cast a fly in front of them. So you're basically looking for the boils that they make when they turn to take bait fish if you're sort of waiting through the system or you can wait at the ambush point and just um, try and cast your fly up into the shallows. We're just using a weight, unweighted tube fly and just sit it there and then as they come in to do their sweep, just give it a bit of a strip and, and um, catch the fish that way. I wouldn't sort of say that you know, either technique's more effective than the other. Is it both perfectly fine ways to catch the time? And I think Chiba and I maybe caught, on that trip that we did the filming for Predator, we maybe caught four each, I think. Yeah, maybe four or five each, which and, is good. Sorry, Roger, go on. Yeah, four or five each, and, and that was over a period of a week, or? That was over three days, but um, three oh, long three days, days we... Yeah, we're starting at four in the morning because we wanted to maximise the time to, for Nick to get his um, footage. So, yeah, we're starting really, really early. But, um, 
it's the kind of fishing where you can go for a week and you might catch one or you can go for a week and you might catch 10. You know, I won't sort of kid people and say that it's, it's like um, super prolific. These are a big, very special fish and if you catch one or two on a trip or three or four, then that's a really good result. So that's kind of like steelhead fishing, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> Where it can be so. really miserable and you catch none. <laughs> <laughs> or you can get lucky and catch four or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, but no 100 fish days. <laughs> no, sure. no, not like cutthroat yeah. trout or, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. What about time of day? You said four in the morning. Um, did, <laughs> would you fish all day? I think it's probably pretty long days up there in the summer too, right? Yeah, it's very long. It's light at four um, and um, light through to eleven or or, or whatever. For, for us in the Sarafutsu, it's more probably get governed by tide. And I couldn't even Chiba had the tides worked out. I I didn't really see that there was much of a pattern. But often he would say, "Look, in the next half hour, this is probably the prime time, and you know, it's not the most useful answer for you." But for me, it never sort of correlated to a particular tide or. It was just when he said they were on, um, they were on. Look, it's a combination of the cloud cover. Do they feel comfortable coming in close? What's the flow rate like? Where are the bait? You just get these periods where the sort of it all comes together. But the kind of reality of that is it, it's best to just put in long hours because it's not always predictable when that period is going to be. Yeah. It's not like yeah. a dawn or dusk thing. You don't have to get out there at four in the morning. We just did that because it it suited what we're trying to do. Well, the you know, when you work with the tides, that uh, you know, and that's why I was kind of getting at with the timing because, you know, last time I was in Belize fishing for tarpon, we did have to get up at 4 in the morning because the tarpon would move into the bay with the tide, and at that time of the month, that's when the, the tide was working them into the into the lagoons, you know. Uh-huh. And they'd be there for an hour, and then they'd be gone, you know. And then you got have to go somewhere else, fish for something else. But uh, so I was wondering if it was that that dependent on the tides, or if in between the movement of the tides, there were also you know fishing opportunities then as well. Yeah, I think there is throughout the day. Um, we caught them at all times of the day, and it wasn't always that predictable. But it was, certainly wasn't, you know. Oh, there's no point fishing at this time because the tide's not right. We just do it, basically, and, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, and catch them throughout the day. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. it was a good... Yeah, that week we did the filming, that was that was fantastic. On the first day we caught one each, I think, um, of 70 centimetres, and Nick sort of... T- so we actually had the, some footage in the bag, which is always the always a concern with <laughs> filming a, a film that you're going to get zero, um, especially when you've only got three days. So we had the two 70-centimetre fish, and Chiba and I were quite pleased with ourselves, and, and Nick sort of took a look at us and said, well, yeah, that's good, but I've called the film Predator, and can you guys really sort of say that for this species 70 centimetres is, is a predator? And uh, <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, okay. So he wants to get out there at four the next morning, and he said, yep. So we did the next morning, and we both caught an 80 centimetre, which was good. And then uh, for the final day, we both caught a 95 centimetre fish, which was good. And I think what Nick was even happy about was he filmed... Um, I fished in the ambush spot and hooked 
sorry again I'm doing the centimetres, sorry about this, but um, I hooked the um, 40-45 inch fish, so one metre plus, on the final day in the ambush spot, which he sort of captured the take on film, the fish sort of ran and buried itself around the snag and broke me off. Oh, there was two actually. The first one, <laughs> first one broke me off on the snag because I let it run, and then the next next one I thought, oh, I'm just going to keep up tight to this similar size fish. I'm going to keep up really, really tight to this and give it no quarter because I know there's a snag there and I'm not going to get busted off that way again. And um, unfortunately, the um, I was feeding the loose fly line back through that as to just to give it a little bit of ground so it didn't break the leader. So using 16 pound fluoro leader. And as I was feeding it out, there was one wrap that caught around the butt end of the rod. And so as soon as that happened, the fish has come up super tight on the 16-pound leader and just busted, busted the leader. So he's, um, so my one shot at getting this sort of landmark time in, or I had two shots, I suppose, both, <laughs> both ended in bust-offs, unfortunately. But um, I was trying to be the first non-Japanese to join the, the one-metre-plus club for time in, and it's like a, I don't know, in our fishing fraternity, there was five five guys who who joined that club, and they award themselves a little badge <laughs> for doing so. And I kind of have my eye on that badge, but um, unfortunately, at this point, um, <laughs> I haven't got it. And nobody else did. Uh, nobody else did that trip either, huh? Uh, that same trip, no. Chiba didn't. We got ninety five, but you know, so sort of nudging up towards forty inches. But um, no. But all those guys, I mean, Chiba would have caught multiple over over one one meter and so would the other guys i think i was <laughs> i was pretty much the only one who had it to be honest yeah 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 the um when you're fighting them uh do they jump they run yeah they hunker down what what is their what, what uh, how do they act they um they like a trout really yeah you get a bit of jumping not you know not a huge like not every all the time they go on sort of big powerful run where you know, ideally you'll let, just let them run. There's not, aside from the spot I was telling you about, there's not really much structure in the river, so it's sort of no harm in letting them go for a run, and, and they'll run for sort of 30, 40 yards, um, and then you can sort of start to put the pressure on them and, and bring them back in. They're powerful. They're really powerful fish, but um, if you're sort of using the right gear and you've got enough sort of runway to let them go, you can you'll overcome them eventually. Yeah, but they fight pretty much like a brown trout. They're not a dirty okay. fighter. There's not sort of, um, they won't, like I said, there isn't a huge amount of structure, but even if there is, I don't, they're not sort of kind of trying to rip you into the rocks or a tree or that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we need to take a quick break again here, and Rick, so uh, hang tight, and I'll be right back, and we'll talk about flies for timing, and I also talk, we want to talk a little bit more about um, uh, your techniques for, for catching them. So uh, we'll be right back and sure. uh, continue on. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. 
Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Rick Wallace about fly fishing the island of Hokkaido. If you'd like to ask Rick a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, so, Rick, one thing I, I did, you know, reading an article you sent me, um, one of the, the things that uh, I saw the guys doing were, were using stripping baskets. So is that pretty common um, for the timing? Uh, yeah, look, it, it, you, you can do it. Um, it probably would have helped me in the one that I busted off and one that I got wrapped around the end of the line in the way it did. Look, it's it's useful to, um, uh, if you're sort of fishing in an area where this stuff that will get tank that the line will get tangled on the bank and and if you're fishing double-handed casting fairly long lines so it's good to sort of have that sort of elevated and somewhere safe out of the way and if it's a floating line and, and there's waves or something you, you get that issue cropping up as well so yeah yeah they can be handy okay okay um what about flies charles rogers uh wrote in here on the internet from uh, south carolina so what flies do you use? Are they similar to the flies used in the U.S.? Yeah, I think um, there's there's a few different types of flies. Uh, the most of the ones we use at Chiwood, to my friend Chiwood tie, or some I tied, mainly that you're looking at sort of unweighted bucktail-type streamers, often in purple and black, ideally sort of two or three inches long and with a sort of stinger hook on the bottom. That was sort of a classic time and fly and that's the one you might fish on a sink tip and just strip across. And for the surface fly, you're looking at a gurgler, something of similar length, and just something that will float, the classic gurgler with a sort of foam head or deer hair or something like that, and stripping that across. And then for the shallows, the most effective fly was a tube fly, just with a nice strong nice strong hook, just a line running through it, and a, uh, a tube fly. Again, that would be shorter, about one inch long, and the, most of the feathers are sort of blue, white, purple, black, those sort of colours. And the uh, other fly we would use is if the water's discoloured, as you sometimes towards the end of the season, the water's starting to get a little bit discoloured, then we'd use a white zonker, just a uh, white zonker pattern, which we'd tie up and pretty simple fly, like a bit of a hackle on it and um, a zonker strip, um, maybe a bit of flash in it, uh, and again, sort of two to three inches long. Those flies, okay. that's probably describes the, the main flies you'd use for them. Pretty Your guide, common. if you yeah. go with a guide, they, I, I usually leave that to them. But those are, those are the kind of flies you can take. And I think we also fish with the sort of traditional salmon flies that you'd use uh, in North America too. Probably things that work in Alaska would, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Now, when you go with a guide there, do they provide flies? Is that expected, or are you expected to bring your own? Uh, by all means, bring your own, but they should, for a specialist species like this, they'll they'll provide them, yeah. But most people what that about? fish with Japanese guides say that they're fantastic. Um, I, I'd agree with that. They're among the best guides in the world. They're just so accommodating and will really look after you and make sure you have a great experience. What about fly shops and so forth in the area? Uh, if you're missing gear or break gear, is there a place to go? No, that's um, no. yeah. Glad you asked that. Actually, 
look, there might be a supplier, but I, there's probably only two or three in Tokyo, and mm. that's why we sort of ended up tying our own. Often, the, you can go into the, the shop in Tokyo will sell time and flies, but I think it's best to, like, if you're going, you might do a trip that involves, like, a few days rainbow trout, a few days time and, and, and maybe um, white-spotted char or a different species, uh, is bring your own patterns because a lot of them will, will work and then the guides can supply the, the real special patterns that are required. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, those are always um, things you need to know because many parts of the mm. world, you get there and there's no place to buy gear, you know. If no. you didn't bring it, <laughs> no, no. you're not going to use it. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, that's important. Well, let's, we often uh, surprise ourselves by which flies from, you know, and a fly from Australia might work in Colorado or vice versa. Yeah. It's funny how the same sort of genetics make up of the species, the same fly will work in different places. Yeah, 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 that's, that's true. Um, especially those bucktail patterns or those zonker patterns, you know, those are mm. pretty common all over the world. Gurglers, you know, that's all pretty common flies, yeah. Um, anything else about, um, you know, fishing for time and you think we should, we should talk about or mention? Uh, I think that's those are probably the main the main things to know. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to think. So we've gone over gear. Sixteen, yeah. For for tippet, just fluoro sixteen pound. Gone over the rods, sort of where to find them. Catch and release, obviously. That's probably the other really important thing to mention. Yeah, this is a spe- species that's very heavily threatened. Um, it used to be more abundant. So I'm happy to tell people where to fish for them uh, because, you know, your audience and people that come from overseas aren't going to take fish. They're going right. you know, to catch and release. And I think it's the more kind of the locals see this as a tourism venture for them, the more likely they are going to be to, to protect this fish as well. So, yeah, catch and release is very important and, and get them back quickly as, you know, we all do. You know, they keep them wet philosophy. And I think you, you had uh, mentioned in your article that, they aren't particularly tasty fish, so um, it's no. not one you're salivating over anyway, anyway <laughs> in the first place. No. Right? Yeah. No, not okay. at all. No. Okay. Um, well, let's uh, let's move on and talk about a couple other species that you might fish for when you're on Hokkaido. Uh, mm-hmm. Talking about rainbows. Um, now, you're going to fish for those in, um, as you said earlier, in a different area, different streams. Yeah, they're more more widely dispersed and there's lots of good rainbow fishing. Um, I haven't fished all over the island, but the areas I've fished have sort of been more um, central or eastern Hokkaido. And the type of fishing, because it's that short, short sharp summer, um, you're getting a lot of terrestrial insect life uh, falling on the river uh, at these times. And the rivers are crystal clear. So for the most part, it's sort of walking into the headwaters of the river. Well, this is a bit the most interesting fishing for me walking into the headwater of the river, packing your, your bear spray and um, just sneaking in there and, and you, with the fly weight, often sight casting and you'll, it'll be big stimulators or Chernobyl ants, that kind of big dry fly and they'll come up and grab that, those dry flies. It's really, really um, fun fishing. And they're, they're very picky as well. Like um, I don't know if you have the same sort of prejudice over here, but in New Zealand or Australia with the rainbow great sport fish but people have the perception that compared to brown trout it's not particularly 
fussy or hard to fool or uh, it's a bit of a dumber fish, but um, that's that's the way people see it. But um, over there, these these fish will, you know, if you're using 3x tippet and the fly's not tied right, you'll get rejected every time. So you've got to you've got to fish well and and you've got to sort of use use the right gear that's light enough to get the eat, but strong enough to stop the fish. So I, I think it's fantastic. It's really really good fishing. What size do the rainbows get there? What's an average? What's a trophy? Yeah, good question. 20 inches, 25 would be a big fish. Cheaper fishes for them also. And the main river in Hokkaido is called the Teshio River, and that's the one of the three spots you'll get the time and um, sea run time. And, but that river, you'll, you can also catch rainbow swing, swinging flies. He probably catches bigger fish doing that. I, I've seen some of them. They're almost like steelhead. But if you're more into the, the sort of headwaters sort of side fishing, yeah, I think you're looking at 20 inches of a good fish, and they're fat. They, those 20-inch fish are so strong, and you're in um, really tight streams with structure. They're very hard to stop. And, you know, 25 inches or something would be a very big fish, but um, certainly by no means impossible. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've mentioned, you know, stimulators, attractor patterns, uh, you know, terrestrial kind of things. What about, um, you know, matching the hatch? Do you have the... the do you get into hatches where you know matching it is is very important? Yeah, that, that's a good question. For the rainbows, I never fished a hatch there. Um, the hatch, which I can talk about, is was more the white spotted char, and that's a hundred percent a match the hatch fishery. For for all the rainbow fishing I did, and I'm not saying that it's like this all over the island. I'm sure there's rivers that are like spring creeks with a hatch, but what was falling on the water was much always much better protein source than what was um, in these forest streams and what was coming up from below. So they're very sort of attuned to that coming up to the surface and, and taking from the surface. But for the, the other fish, the white spotted, we can come back to the rainbows if you like, but I, I might as well tell you about this fish now. It's, um, sure. It's a, the, the fish that's native to Japan, they call ame mas, which is a, a white spotted char, a very, very beautiful fish. And the, it, the main, there's a main lake in... It's very common in central Hokkaido. There's a main lake there called Lake Akan where you have every year around the summer solstice you have a two-week-long hatch of these giant giant mayfly called, um, they call them Monkogero. They're, I guess, like your green drake, a, a mayfly that's a size 10 or even a size 8. And once you get this sort of two-week hatch, if you can time it, you can go and fish on this lake for, for these fish rising all day up to these giant mayfly which are which is a really really fun thing to do and it's sort of almost a good thing to anchor your trip around um i had an australian fishing rider who went over there and did a trip to japan and he, he sort of used that as a sort of starting point for his trip to go and try and do that hatch and then go and do other things uh, around that so that's that's an area where you've got to match the hatch and you've got all the same phases of the mayflies that we're deal, dealing with you know are they on the merger are they on the done are they on the spinner and you've got these big flies that sort of represent each of each of those phases, and um, you've got to really do your best to try and fool them. And they're not they're not easy. They're super picky, and they um, like I tied some myself. Japanese fly ties love CDC. Um, they use a lot of CDC, and I'd tied some that someone had told me about the mayfly, and I tied it. And instead of CDC, I'd use high vis or some synthetic fibre, and um, just got out on the on the lake and 
it just didn't work at all like it any but as soon as I took them off and tied on the fly with the C2C instead of the um, synthetic uh, I was fine I was getting success but um yeah so it's a fun match the hatch fishery for a really special fish and it's um it's not sort of the Akan is not like a wild west sort of place it's like a there's a town there and there's beautiful hotels and um, there's hot springs there's you know, wonderful sushi restaurants and stuff. So if you're wanting a trip that sort of combines comfort and even if you've got a partner that's not fishing or, or whatever, then Akan is a good one to do because it's in a sort of much more, you know, much more civilised, wrong word to use, but compared to the time and where you're sort of right up in the middle of nowhere and trying to sort of get these fish in this windswept sort of lake, but um, lake or river, yeah. So that's a good one to bear in mind if you're fishing up there and you're wanting to go in summer, but time it around that, that particular period. What is that uh, time period? Uh, it's usually the second week in um, June. I think the solstice is the 20, 21st or 22nd. Uh, it's usually pretty regular, so I think we always went up there sort of, yeah, June 15 or thereabouts. Hmm. Okay, okay. So so these char are always your lake fishing. Are you fishing from the shore, from boats, tubes? Uh, we're fishing from the fishing from the shore almost always, but we, I don't think I took my float float to Japan. But um, there is a boat service on the lake, so you. I think sometimes we yeah sometimes we take the boat if we'd heard the hatch was particularly strong at one corner of the lake. It's quite a large lake. It's a caldera lake um, in an old volcano crater, and you can't really walk around it so um, too big. So we'd sometimes hire the boat guy to. Um, take us to a particular shore when we thought the mayfly hatch was, was strong. I remember I just sort of learned a lesson with that boat guy once. He said, he, he got talking to me and um, on the way over and uh, and he said, yeah, uh, he mentioned something about ants and um, flying ants. And he said, don't don't forget the flying ant. <laughs> and um, we're fishing into uh, the evening rise with these mayflies and uh, we just stopped having success for, for a little while and... Um, even though they're, they're rising all around us and um, there's mayfly are there. And I'm, something just stuck in my head. I thought, oh, okay, the ant, the guy mentioned that. And just tied on the smallest, tiniest little ant pattern I could and then just cast that out. We're in the last 10 minutes of light trying, trying to get another fish. And um, I caught the biggest one that I've caught, like a nice sort of, I think it was between 20 and 25 inches, this char on this wow. tiny little ant. Just shows that sometimes like... Um, that the love that trout species have for ants is never ceases to amaze me. It's always my go-to fly. <laughs> if all else fails or you, you're getting rejected, so often the ant will trigger the right response. You know, I, I've heard that a lot <laughs> from my guests, <laughs> uh, and you know, and it's. But everybody's got, got this. Still, got this question mark in their head about the ants. You know, it's like it's not the first fly you ever tie on, is it? <laughs> You not know really, I mean? no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, I'm going to try the ant. That really worked well the last time I was out. No, <laughs> it's a, it comes later. It seems like for some for some reason, and it's it seems to be yeah, pretty common good. all over the world. But and and <laughs> you know, like when's the last time you saw an ant floating down? You know, the river or the yeah, I know. You, you know, you don't see they them must either. Just taste nice they must be like candy for them though. There's something about it that they just love. Yeah, somebody was saying there's some kind of acid in in them or something that um, that maybe uh -huh. the trout like. I don't know. Yeah, a certain flavor. I don't know. Well, let me uh, let me take another quick break and we'll, we'll come back talk sure. a little bit more about uh, rainbows and salmon and char and uh, so uh, hang tight.
Perfect. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club levels are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. Fly Fishers International's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Rick Wallace about fly fishing the island of Hokkaido. If you'd like to ask Rick a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form there, and uh, send it in, and we'll try to get your questions answered before the end of the show. Okay, um, so Rick, um, char, so you said a 26-inch char, that's a that's a good-sized fish. Uh, yeah. Is that is that a big fish? Is that a uh, yeah, that's a pretty big, big fish? Big. Uh, what, what's an average char? I'd say those average char are much smaller than that, around... Um, you know, maybe 15 inches uh, okay. is probably average, for, yeah, for the non-sea run version. The sea run version will be bigger. I must confess I've never fished for the sea run um, white-spotted char. Uh, Nick Nick caught one when he was up there. He stayed, after we finished filming the film, he stayed on for a few days and did a bit more fishing and got a, got a nice sea run um, in us. But um, those ones are probably more around 30 inches. Mm, okay. So a nice okay. fish. Yeah, yeah. So they do have sea run too. Wow, lots of things to fish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what about uh, no steelhead though? No sea run trout, huh? other than the the, the timing, of course. But no, I don't think so. If you have these big, some of this, you know, some of my answers might be a bit frustratingly vague. It really is a um, a bit of a frontier, Hokkaido, and there's no info that exists in English. And like even Chiba, uh, my friend, like his my Japanese is pretty poor, and his English. I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, it's pretty poor. So we've got a situation where <laughs> people's knowledge is imperfect. So I've seen him catch these big rainbows on, in the Tesho River. and um, But I don't know if they're steelhead or just a, or just a resident rainbow. So it's a kind of a good question. There's a lot, a lot more to sort of study and learn about um, fly fishing in Hokkaido. And I think that, <laughs> you know, the language is the biggest barrier because if you're Japanese and you read Japanese, you can probably just read the magazines and all of this is spelled out but if you're sort of coming from outside there's a bit of a, a bit to sort of get through in terms of <laughs> getting a working knowledge of how every species up there works and there's as you've touched on there's so many so many species up there with the pacific salmon and all the char um yeah it's a bit um, a lot to fill your head with put it that way did you guys um going back to where where you were on the island when you were fishing for time and the char and the rainbow were you Settle down in one area, one hotel, or were you moving around? We'd move around. Um, okay. It's quite large. It would take, I'm just trying to think, it would probably take uh, to drive from one part, from Sapporo in the, at the bottom of the island to Wakanai at the top. It would probably take you six hours to drive, I think. Um, oh, wow. 
Okay. So it, it's quite big. Uh, so for the uh, time, and we'd always stay in Sarafutsu town in the hotel, and then um, we'd drive the four hours or so down to Lake Akan, and we'd stay at the at a nice hotel on the lake there, and then other other places you'd just stay at a you know basic sort of hotel in the town in the nearby town. Okay. And just go go back and have dinner there, and a nice onsen bath and and whatever. It's quite very very civilized fishing in a way. Yeah. Did your guide take care of that, or did you have to arrange your trip uh, for the, the lodging and so forth? No, they take care of that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, they, okay. yeah they'll, they'll sort out the lodging and everything like that. I should, before I forget, um, and it's, I, I'm not promoting them because I have any relationship with them, but I, the one thing I want to leave people with is um, to find a guide. There's a company called Trout and King, which is probably the, the – we know the guys that run – Trout and King that they run a guiding service and um, based in Tokyo but they contract the, the right guides for you in Hokkaido so if you wanted to I can even um, send you the um, website for the for the site but that's a really good starting point if you want to if this really appeals to you and you say oh, look I'm going to book a trip over there and the first question is sort of how, how do I get started um, I yeah. think Trout, Trout and King's a good starting point you can sort of say oh look I want to come over in June and can you do up an itinerary for me and, and get talking to the guys there? Ebby and their, their name, first names are Ebby and Aki, and they are they're nice fellows and they know their stuff. So that's probably can a you, good starting point. Can you repeat that slowly? I'm not understanding the, the name of the outfit. Yeah, sorry. It's two words, so Trout and King. Trout um, and King, like K-I-N-G? Yeah, correct. Troutandking.com. Yeah, it's a, a funny name, hey? Uh, just looking up their English site, it is, yes, it is, exactly. Trout and King with the and spelt out, troutandking.com. Right. Okay. And Aki, A-K-I. Yeah. And, and what's the other gentleman's name? It's uh, Ebi. E-B-I. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll put the link on your, uh, on your, your show page. Uh, when it's published, and then people can find that. Because, uh, yeah, it sounds like that's an absolute to get started. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of helping hands up there, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's better than sort of wandering out into the bear-ridden um, forest <laughs> with your flower yeah. in hand, which is I, I like to do, but, you know, like sometimes you've got to sort of say, no, I do need a guide, and <laughs> you're dealing with language yeah. barrier and bears and where to go, etc. It's just going to make it easier. Right, right. So um, we haven't talked about the salmon. You said they were pink chums, mm. yeah. uh, and they run what? Did you say August, September? Yeah, they do. Um, the first is the, to come in as the pink salmon, uh, and then then the chum. Um, they um, the the rules in Japan are a little different. You're not allowed to basically not allowed to fish for them in the river, um, which is a lot different oh. to the situation in North America. So what you have to do is um, fish for them in the in the ocean just um, just before they come in. So whenever there's a bit of a storm, or um, it's funny the the streams that they'll spawn up are so so small, more like a kind of like a drainage ditch or something than a stream. So rather than going to the, the big river mouths where you get like a lot of spin anglers or um, a lot of people, we'd sort of typically drive down the east coast on the Pacific side, or, uh, and then. Um, just try to find a little stream, and even those little streams were um, just enough to um, for the trout to run up. And 
you'd see you'd see them running up the running up the stream and you'd just be casting out into the waves trying to catch them at the at the river mouth. They're so already pretty streams, fussy though. So even those streams even those, uh you can't fish in the streams, you still have to fish in the No. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, hundred percent. They're pretty pretty strict on that. Um and it's funny the fish that are out in the waves though they've um, already ceased feeding I think because they're all very very fussy so it's it's quite tricky fishing actually I wasn't super successful with this the guys did pretty well but um, I, I struggled with it a bit um, due in part to I fish mainly the chum but uh, very very hard mouth and using sort of small flies and and they're fussy and it can be quite frustrating fishing to be honest because there's so many of them and you think, oh God, I should be, I should be doing better here, and um, and they're not just not easy to fool, believe it or not. What uh, what kind of flies were you using, and how were you fishing for them? Uh, fishing uh, sometimes the, the more conventional salmon fly that you'll find, you know, a bit of a streamer with some marabou or whatever. But sometimes the guys would just fish um, like a hook, just with a few strands of synthetic wool on it, um, and just fish it dead drift and for some reason that's why it was was sort of very effective didn't sort of imitate anything of course it just um just was sort of an irritating little sort of red creature uh and yeah that that fly was relatively effective hmm, and these salmon these salmon are kind of um right along the eastern coast of the island there's a peninsula um, if you're sort of looking at the island we We'd fish. There's a peninsula there called Shiratoko, which is a national park, and that's quite famous for its salmon fishing. You get salmon coming in on that um, on that peninsula, and you can go and fish there. It's also very beautiful. It's a nice nice tourist area. But right the way up that sort of east coast, the right, the road runs as you're driving up, say towards Wakanai, the road runs parallel to the um, to the coast, and you can just stop on one of the stream mouths along there and and if you're there at the right time there'll be there'll be salmon to fish um, to fish to for sure it's probably one of the yeah, ones where you don't need a guide yeah mm -hmm. yeah um, do it. the um yeah i fished for for chum in alaska and most of the ones i caught this is in a river of course but not out in the mm -hmm. ocean that's why i was really interested in how you were fishing for them because in the river, we were just dead drifting like a AP black nymph fly, and uh -huh, they just yep. loved it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, really? Like a bead-headed nymph or something? Or pardon me? Like a bead-headed one, or just a? Wasn't it even a bead-headed? AP black is right. just a, a black nymph. Um, I mean, right. just standard-looking black. It's an old fly. It's kind of like an old traditional fly. Um, I forget what AP is. It's, Somebody's initials, mm -hmm. but A A P Black. You can you can find it on okay. the internet. Pretty nothing special, but they liked it and uh, <laughs> just dead drift, because you think a lot of them aren't feeding, and why would they eat a nymph if they're not feeding? And then you think they'd attack a, a streamer just out of you know spite, right? Yeah, but, um, yeah, exactly. Who can figure out a fish's mind, right? <laughs> There's so many different ways to to go about it, isn't there? It's yeah really amazing yeah so um so you'd have to go at what um can you narrow down the the time span and and uh when the salmon are running for you know you said August, yeah, yeah i think um yeah I'm, i think basically late july um so let's say early august you're getting the pink salmon starting to come in and they'll run through to october 
uh, and then the chum um, might pay to research this a little bit, but I think the chum you're more thinking September through to November, so it's that sort mm -hmm. of time. If you were there in the you know start of October or something, I think you'd have have a chance at both species. Ah, okay. Trouble is, it's okay. sort of slightly outside of the time of the the best fishing for the time and then time right. of rainbows and char. And it looks for yeah. people in your part of the world, it might be you you might have better salmon fishing in a you know more interesting yeah. area than um, than than you have in Japan. Yeah, I'm getting getting impression that the reason you'd go there is uh, is for the timing, and uh, take some days for rainbows and char. But mm. um, but that's your main focus is the timing, right? I think so. If if that's your thing, I mean, I could I think you'd easily justify a trip just to go and target rainbows alone. Yeah, and and I think if you're a small stream fisherman or woman, um, you're going to have some of the finest sort of small stream fishing just taking a a real lightweight rod up into the mountains and doing that. And the guides are more than happy to do that as well. You, the guides aren't all sort of focused around the time. And, I mean, I got into the time because friends were in, in a, into it and then the, and then the, um, the film, obviously. Um, but, you know, I would be equally happy to go up there to fish for a rainbow trout. Okay, okay, good, good. All right, well, um, I think we about covered it for tonight. We're running out of time here. Mm -hmm. uh, but stick with me, Rick, till the end, because we're going to give away a few prizes. And uh, okay. I will uh, include you in uh, helping me get the right answer to my question. So, uh, so okay. uh, just stick tight with me. And um, we're going to be giving away uh, that one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And we'll also be giving away a, a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. So uh, we'll be doing that in just a moment. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region, and two million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Thousands of fishermen and 31 Alaskan native tribes depend on Bristol Bay every day. Pebble Mine will poison Bristol Bay with over 10 billion tons of toxic waste, which threatens to destroy their livelihoods. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers released recently an impact statement and uh, looked like it was going to open the doors for this to go forward, but that has now, as I understand it, been set back. So uh, your efforts have um, helped to, to try to keep this from happening. So the only way to stop it is, is really to get involved, at least uh, sign petitions and so forth. So um, anglers are across the country and the world are, are joining in this epic battle. Be one of them. Visit uh, SaveBristolBay.org, SaveBristolBay.org, forward slash tell President Trump. And there you'll find a, um, a, serve, uh, or a petition form to uh, dissuade the, the government from letting this thing go forward. So voice your concern there. Again, savebristolbay.org forward slash tell President Trump. You'll learn more about what's happening out there and uh, hopefully you can participate to, to help save that fishery. Just as a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find the link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show, 
So you don't want to miss out on, on some of these nice prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll be contacting you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we will be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. If you don't win tonight, go out there and, uh, and sign up anyway and become a member. It's an international organization that serves both salt water, fresh water, warm water, and international membership. So uh, let's see. I fire my database up here and have it choose. Um, okay, looks like we have Rob uh, Conowich uh, in Pennsylvania. So Rob, you just got yourself an FFI membership and uh, congratulations on that. And uh, the next thing we're giving away is a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Again, amatobooks.com. They have uh, the periodical on fly fishing as well as many books they've published on fly fishing. So check them out. Um, and it looks like we have Lucen uh, Baranov, uh, Bar I'm sorry, Lucen Baranov in New York. So Lucen, um, congratulations to you as well. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy that subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Okay, so um, last thing we're going to give away is that book to uh, uh, Stackpole Books. And let me just clear my queue here. So um, we have, there was, um, there was one distinctive feature um, that Rick mentioned that he thought was different about the Timon than the Mongolian timing, the Japanese timing versus the Mongolian timing. What was that feature of that timing? And uh, so Rick, now it takes a few seconds for them to hear the question because there is a little bit of a delay before the broadcast mm -hmm. goes out. And uh, so we, we have to entertain ourselves while we wait for them to uh, <laughs> type something in. <laughs> so uh, pinging your email. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so let's see, you're coming into, let's see, you're coming into spring down there, right? We are, In Melbourne? yeah. We are, yeah, coming into fishing, trout fishing season. Um, oh, is it? Just opened yeah. the other day. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't get, uh, you know, I did visit Melbourne once, um, but as I think we talked about before, but I never got outside of the city. <laughs> you know, well, I take that back. We did go down south of there. And it was like a long peninsula or something we went on. Does that ring a bell? Uh, Wilson's Promontory, could that be? Or? That, that might be. It was like tall cliffs and seemed to be ever. Oh, Great Ocean Road, I think. Maybe um, the Twelve Apostles region. Yeah, that's a sort of a, a road that sort of followed the coast and it's quite dramatic cliffs. Yeah, I think that's where we that went. That ring a bell? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was quite impressive. Otherwise, we, we were in the city, so I didn't get in the hills or anything around there to see. We weren't fishing at the time, but uh, uh, that was... There's some um, okay trout fishing here, but I think uh, Tasmania, um, the island to the south of us, is, is better trout fishing, and New Zealand, of course, is amazing um, trout Yeah, fishing. yeah. Well, I think we've got a winner here, um, and... Uh, the answer is Timon, uh, our silvery with the pink U. Correct. Correct, huh? So, Phil, mm -hmm. you won again. 
Phil's a longtime <laughs> listener. He wins a lot. <laughs> he's fast on the keyboard, and he and he <laughs> takes good notes, or he's got a good memory. I tell you. Um, so, uh, Phil, again, uh, send me your address. Uh, you know the routine. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I'm going to send you a, a list of the books, and then you can uh, send me your address when you pick a book. So um, I'll be sending the, you that out to you. I've got your email address. And congrats again. You're getting quite the library over there, I think, Phil. So uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I know you do because you're always listening. So. Thanks a lot for, for being here. Uh, thanks, everybody, for playing tonight. And um, hopefully you've, you've all found our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just take a look at the top of the, the web page, and um, you'll see a podcast archive. Over 320 shows now in there. So use that keyword search function and find what you, you know, there's all kinds of things to look up and search for and, uh, and educate yourself about. And uh, Rick, thank you so much for uh, joining us all the way from Australia. <laughs> and uh, and Australian uh, talking really, about Japan, eh? Yeah, and talk about Japan. How's that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you taking your time out and uh, sharing your knowledge about that because it's a, a really unique experience that I don't think a lot of people know about. So um, uh, hopefully we'll we'll educated some people about that. So thank you so much for for being here with us tonight. No worries. It was an absolute pleasure, and um, yeah, just happy to kind of share what what a wonderful place this is, and it's a good, really good way to do some fishing and also have a bit of a cultural holiday as well. So uh, I'd heartily recommend it to anyone. Oh, and uh, you know, I didn't uh, ask you, but why don't you uh, tell people about your website and what you're doing on that before we we part ways here? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Look, it's um, it was just another little project I'm doing. We have some friends who um, we all do a bit of fishing and, and like to sometimes write, do a bit of writing about fishing. So we've um, formed a little website called um, tacklevillage.com. Um, so we just write, do some writing around um, fishing. The fly fishing content, you, your audience will probably find a little bit thin, to be honest. It's a start, site we're just starting out, but um, I, I post a little bit about fly tying and um, particular flies I'm tying, but it's a, just something I'm doing uh, as a little side project, so um, please excuse the, the, the depth of the content isn't there at the moment, but it's just something to check out if you if you were interested. Um, we'll see how that develops over time. Okay, well, good. Well, thanks for sharing, and uh, we'll, we'll post that link up on your show page as well and your, your, bio, your speaker's page so people can find Terrific. you there. So. All right. Well, our next broadcast will be on October uh, 21st, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to, on that show, I'm going to interview Anthony uh, Carusco, and the topic will be the rivers of Northern California. Anthony's a professional guide in Northern California. He guides on the lower and upper Sacramento, the Klamath, uh, the Pitt, the McLeod rivers that are all places he, he takes his guests. And um, these beautiful waters produce rainbows, browns, and Pacific steelhead. And whether you float it, weight it, you want to fish nymphs, dries, or streamers, you're going to be right at home there. So listen in and learn all about these rivers and how to hook up with what some people call California's gold. So hang around next time and uh, join us, and uh, I'm sure you'll you'll be well-educated. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Bye.